I'm Stacey Cabrera, and this is Fill in the Details, a podcast devoted to exploring the way philosophical wisdom and insights fill in the details of my favorite books, films, and works of art, provoking thoughtful discussion and meaning-making in the everyday life routine. So this is going to be somewhat of a quick little catch-up episode. Last episode, we almost exclusively focused on the statements of Rampion and Philip in these late chapters where Huxley's exposing all of the philosophical problems and bringing conscious awareness to the idea of metacognition in his book. We went over Rampion's major speech on living, being idiots and machine during work hours, and real and compute human beings in the rest of the time. We went over the math. Not a real satisfying answer. Thanks, Rampion. Uh, We looked at some of the responses to that idea, Camus' myth of Sisyphus, the constant yoga of everything that is Huxley's novel Island, the process of consciousness unfolding in Hegel's dialectic, We discussed Philip's notebook and his views of himself as somewhat of a challenge to Rampion's notions as well. But in the process of narrowing our focus onto those two characters, we missed a lot of crazy stuff. So this episode will be a little bit of a where are they now kind of episode. We'll go over the latest in the Walter Lucy drama. I haven't even talked yet about Eleanor and I haven't even introduced Webley, who seems pretty important here at the end of the book. Uh, And I've also got to get on to the latest of Spandrel's experiment. Last time we talked about Walter and Lucy, Walter had finally won his conquest. Kind of. He'd at least convinced her enough to allow him to have her. Uh, That doesn't last very long before she starts throwing doubts on all of that as well. Um, As has been consistent with her character, she rotates crops. And now that she's had Walter, now she's getting bored with him. So she'll move on. The last discussion of theirs we went over was the discussion about modern life being lived in a fast lane and leaving all the baggage behind. Well, that was kind of a hint for him, the baggage, that he'd be left behind. And as the book progresses, she's made her way to France. She's hanging out there for a while. He's at home, working. Oh, don't worry, they're writing letters back and forth, too. But in the late chapters, we're really only privy to the letters that Lucy's writing back to Walter. The more we get of that, too, the more hilarious those become. Uh, The first she sent is meant to be kind of taunting and romantic in language, talking about the gowns and the sunsets and all kinds of enticing things. Uh, She talks about going out to dinner with a man, which probably sets Walter off, which is why you can kind of read between the lines of the next letter. Lucy's just kind of upset with his angry tone. The letters then grow more and more crude and more blunt as they go on. Uh, as she starts talking about married couples that she's friends with and they're dripping wax on each other, kinky, going to orgies, which she calls boring, and then she invites him to Spain with her, only for him to get himself ready to go and for her to cancel it last minute. <laughs> so this leads to the final letter, which Walter's reading while he's sitting down to lunch. In a lot of ways, this section is somewhat meant, I think, to mirror the quick succession that was probably the early romances between Walter and Marjorie. Uh, Earlier in the book, while Walter's at Sabisa's with Lucy and Spandrel after the Tantamount party, there's a quick pan back to Marjorie, who's sitting at home late at night, probably after Walter was supposed to have already been home, and she's sitting there reading the letters that he wrote from her in the past. She just takes out a box and starts reading the letters that she's kept, which is a terrible idea. Absolutely a hopeless romantic, but she describes how much better he was at romance from afar through these letters, and like he said, they could have had a romance in an affair, which would have been way better than their current situation. So here he is on the other side of the romance letters that aren't very romantic, and especially this last one. Uh, He's probably sent another angry reply after being stood up in Spain, which, I I mean, 
to be expected to some degree, but you can hear it at the beginning of her letter back, insufferable your letter. Once and for all, I refuse to be cursed at or whined at. I simply won't be reproached or condemned. I do what I like and I don't admit anybody's right to call my doings into question. Right away, she establishes that disconnect, which to be fair is her right. He has no claim to her. And I'm sure if she just said the phrase, leave me in peace, the mirror would be held up in front of him with much more obvious. They aren't married. They aren't even dating. He has zero rights to her exclusivity. He knew this whole time what he was getting into. She wasn't ever really anything but straight with him. There were no false pretenses. This is really all on him. The canceling Spain thing on was kind of shady, though. But still... The, the results of this decision are all on him. So he must have probably made another comment about another man, like a jealous and impetuous child, because she definitely goes into some pretty unnecessary detail about this other man she met in France, and it's very... animalistic encounter? It's not even a date, just straight up to the cheap motel, and then talk later. Biting and scratching. Yikes. Yeah, I'd be pretty broken after a letter like that, too. So what does Walter do? I mean, it's the same thing Walter has always done. He goes back home at this point. But even home isn't the same at this point. Marjorie has been spending all of her free time with Rachel Corals, who's a religious martyr of a woman, and so Marjorie has picked up that religious detachment from her. And now even Walter can't go to her for solace. He just goes up to home, buries his head in the pillows, and while she's throwing him a pity bone from her religious superiority downstairs. It's really sad, but it's not unexpected. Everything happens, it's intrinsically like the man that it happens to. There isn't... This isn't even the only odd coupling in the book. It's been a while since we've talked about Eleanor, but we definitely need to back up a bit to do so. The last we talked about Eleanor, she and Philip were on a cruise ship in India before they had come home. Much of our talk about her has been wrapped up in our talk about him, but she does warrant discussion of just her herself. Eleanor is really well-meaning. She's just really frustrated with the situation that she and her husband find themselves in in their relationship. It's interesting that often her discussion about him in the book is in terms of experiences that are necessary for him writing a good book, which she suggests needs the element of human love, romance, and passion, which is something that she knows from her own married experience that Philip lacks those capacities. So earlier in the book, she talks about setting him up on affairs. There's a recent one in the book at this point in the text where it's him and Molly, um, which, surprise, goes poorly. <laughs> Like a martyr, she does this for the sake of his art. But she's also threatened on multiple occasions that, to teach him a lesson, she would be the one to go off and have an affair. So when they come back from India, and the homestead is awkward, because they're just not homebodies, um, she goes on to call his bluff at one point. And he kind of just lets it happen. Though he always really assumes that whatever her words are won't actually flesh out into reality. He's not entirely wrong about this either, which then infuriates her and there's this long section of the novel where they're barely speaking to each other because she's attempting to disconnect and kind of half embarrassed that she's not properly succeeding. And it's not because she can't find another man. That part was easy. That man is Everard Webley, who's a political leader of the British Freeman, who apparently has been in love with her for years. So we're late to this romance party, but because she was married, there went that. 
But now she's given new life to his conquest by being even interested in name only. Everard is a moose. When I picture him in my head, I picture a large, imposing, and teetering on the edge of scary man. Our first introduction to him is at the tantamount party, which is kind of funny because he really hates everyone at the party. And he's really just simply there to make everyone squirm. But throughout the novel, most of our experience of him as readers comes in the form of his desires for Eleanor, who he's had uh, getting a hard time reciprocating his passion. To be fair, the guy would be kind of hard to match. At one point, he also sends her a letter, which is super violent. Uh, While Eleanor wants something more passionate than she's got with Philip, I just can't imagine this doing it for her, but it does. The letter talks about his recent speeches, there's an incident with a man who challenged him at a rally and then they beat him down, and how he wishes that it was her he was beating down because she is the real enemy, then once he gets his hand on her, he may not stop short of a black eye, but no promises. I mean, it's gross. It's really gross. But seriously, Eleanor, why are you so cold, aloof, and dead? Which is funny, and here's the whole, you know, counterpoint thing, because his response to her sounds very much like her response to her own husband. When they go out together, he tries to hold her hand, to put his arm around her, to kiss her, but she shrinks away from him and curses her body for not being aligned to her head, which is kind of an odd sentiment. From afar and in theory, she can intellectually will herself to fall in love with him, but her body just does not obey when it's confronted. Frustrated, she's constantly working herself up into a frenzy, as seen when she goes to his speech at Hyde Park and she's crying about the beauty of it all, his words, his strength, and his majesty as he sits upon the white horse. Think the white horse of the apocalypse here? Wouldn't be an inaccurate symbol. And here she is not paying attention to the words that are basically describing the toppling of the rich class for the sake of his own class of power. And this is, you know, the class that she belongs to. So the destruction of herself as she's crying about it over here about the beauty of it all. Stupid. She even says as much that it's stupid and silly, but she's overcome with passion and emotions. But ultimately, the situation with Eleanor's attempted affair really just sets us up for one of the more important and climactic scenes of the book. She really is just a pawn in the story to getting the stars to align properly for the experiment that's been conducted the entire novel through Spandrel. In the midst of the Hyde Park speech, a man stands up and says, down with Webley, down with the British Freeman, and gets beat up as a result. That man is Illidge. We met Illidge back at the Tantamount party, and we've had a little bit of conversation about him, actually, as an important counterpoint to all of the rich people in the novels, the poor kid who got lucky and ended up with a scholarship to study at a school that landed him in the job with the rich Lord Edward Tantamount, and he's a scientist, but he also happens to be a communist, hypocritically. The communism is probably a result of him being poor than it, than it is a result of his science, uh, which is fair because he typically espouses the whole survival of the fittest evolutionary scientific mindset thing with anything, in particular intelligence, but not his treatment of his family. It's not aligned to his actions. But of course for him, the fittest is intelligence, which includes himself, which sounds a lot like the way that Webley talks about the head of the British Freeman, the fascist party for toppling the rich and favoring the fittest intelligent class. So why is it then that Illidge hates Webley? Well, fascism and communism are definitely not the same thing. They highlight the same points, but they go about solving them in different ways. So these two become political foils for each other in the book. Illidge, throughout the novel, meets with a little group of rebels that are kind of like Project Mayhem in Fight Club, though not to near the successful degree, 
who have the intent of protesting and disturbing the rallies of the British Freemen. It's their only life. This small act of rebellion at the speech in Hyde Park is likely part of that, and it definitely gets Illidge riled up. Illidge's hatred of Bubbly is never developed in the novel. It's a presupposition to the novel. When we first meet Webley at the Tantamount party, he's being taunted by Lady Edward, and Illidge is standing right behind her witnessing the scene as he describes it almost like a boxing match. Lady Edward wins the fight, and at one point Illidge even says it might not even be her that's all that bad for a witch, rich woman. But that dissipates pretty quickly when she can't even remember his name properly, calling him Mr. Babbage, and then pretends to ask him questions about his work when she's not even listening to him talk. But anyway... Over the course of the novel, Spandrel takes interest in Illidge's hatred here. It presents him something to test, something to exploit. So when Illidge makes the comment that he'd like to kill them all, and all of that, Spandrel sees this as an opportunity and puts it in his pocket and then tries eventually to seize it. Now we have to remember what Spandrel's been getting at the whole novel and how this fits that scheme. We spent a lot of effort going over Spandrel's philosophical enterprise, the desire to, in essence, kind of test God and lure him out of his outsidedness. He's done this a variety of ways so far, including being crappy to his mother, living in his own dust heap, and manipulating young women like little Harriet. We know he is deterministic philosophically. We know that he believes that everything that happens is intrinsically like the man that it happens to, and that he's cool with giving fate a helping hand, as he says to Lucy about being the murderer to Walter's murderee. So he plays a bit of truth or dare here, without the truth part, with Illidge, challenging to actually take up the political murder that he's claimed he's wanted to enact the whole novel. Unfortunately, though, this comes a little bit at Eleanor's expense. Spandrel goes to meet Philip for an evening at Sabisa's, only to find out that he's not home. Eleanor is there and greets him instead, uh, because she's obviously actually waiting for Webley to come pick her up. They're going to dinner and then a night at the theater, and she's pretty much expecting that this will be the night that she has to decide for real if she actually wants to go through with this affair, which Webley has issued for her an ultimatum. She will either stay with your husband or have me. You can't have both. So, to her disappointment and relief all in one, Spandrel's arrival brings her a bit of a distraction, but it ends with a telegram calling her away to Gattenden, as her son, little Phil, has come down with something that's pretty serious. So, Eleanor goes to be a mother, finally, and leaves Spandrel with the job of telling Webley where she's gone and also gives him the house key to take to Philip. So, instead of doing all that, Spandrel takes up the opportunity to call Ilge's bluff. But not really. Spandrel's going to go through with this, whether or not Illidge is there. But at least he can play Illidge like a fiddle for a bit, too, and make him squirm, because that's fun. So in the following scene, Webley has made his conquest against some hate mail and is leaving the office for the night to go pick up Eleanor. So to psych himself up, he stops through Hyde Park, where his last successful rally was held, but for a second it almost humanizes him, as he gazes romantically at the scene as described here. The sun was low, and wherever its rosily golden light touched earth, it was as if a premature and almost luminous autumn had fired the leaves and grass. Great shafts of powdery radiance leaned down from the west between the trees, and in the shadows the twilight was a mist of lavender, a mist of blue, and darkening indigo plane after plane into a hazy London distance. And the couple strolling across the grass, the children playing were alternately eclipsed and transfigured as they passed from shade to sunlight, 
or alternately insignificant and brilliantly miraculous. It was as though a capricious god, now bored and now enchanted by his creatures, had turned upon them at one moment an eye of withering indifference, and at the next, with his love, had bestowed upon them some of his own divinity. The road stretched clear and polished before him. But Everard hardly exceeded the speed limit, in spite of his longing and sense because he loved her so much. For it was all so beautiful, and where beauty was, there too, for Everard, by some private logic, some personal necessity, was Eleanor. She was with him now because she would have enjoyed this loveliness so much, and because she would have wanted to prolong the pleasure, he crept along. The engine was turning at a bare fifteen hundred revolutions a minute. The dynamo was hardly charging. A baby Austin passed him as though he were standing still. Let them pass. Everard was thinking of the phrases in which he would describe this marvel. Through the railings, the bus in Park Lane blazed scarlet and glittered like triumphal cars in a pageant. Faintly, through the noise of the traffic, a clock struck six, and before he had finished, another chimed in, melodious, sweet, and with a touch of melancholy, the very voice of the bright evening and of his happiness. So, feeling good, like this is his night, Wilbur gets to the doorway, rings the bell, calls for Eleanor as friend, and notices that the door is unlocked and open, so he walks in. And then this. There was still no answer. Or was she playing a joke? Would she suddenly pounce out at him from behind one of the screens? He smiled to himself at the thought, and was advancing to explore the silent room when his eye was caught by the papers pinned so conspicuously to a panel of the screen on the right. He approached and had just begun to read the accompanying telegram will explain when a sound behind him made him turn his head. A man was standing within four feet of him, his hands raised. The club which they grasped had already begun to swing sideways and forward from over the right shoulder. Everard threw up his arm too late. The blow caught him on the left temple. It was as though a light had been suddenly turned out. He was not even conscious of falling. At least he went out on a high note. Eleanor is saved from having to make the choice she doesn't actually want to make. Everard is saved from being angry and deflated at his inability to make the choice. He leaves the world on a high note on the winds of romance. And Illich gets his political revenge, right? Well, we find out that Illich chickened out, so it was actually Spandrel who swung the club. And Illich is having major second thoughts, getting sick at the whole scene in the corner. But this does provide Spandrel with some more information about his experiment. As has been the case the whole novel, his discussion of habitual debauchery becomes boring and requires ramping up. Well, he's tried pretty much everything at this point besides murder, so this was deterministically to be expected if you were following his logic. This is a huge moment in the text. It's the first death in the most violently exultant. It should be a major moment of implications. The almost affair, Spandrel's philosophies, Illich's political hatred, in Philip's house, in a populous city, a political leader with lots of violent followers. This should be a moment of major significance. As readers, we start postulating where this could go. Trials, prisons, sentences, a major blow up between Philip and Eleanor, something. It's like when we were little kids and every experience, good or bad, was new. The first time you told a lie, especially if you were a conscientious child, was probably a big deal. You probably looked and acted guilty, and your parents could probably tell. And they, maybe they made you wriggle in it for a while just to teach you a lesson. When you got caught and scolded, it maybe worked. For a while, 
But then, Habit takes the sorted out of everything and leaves mundane boredom. I can't speak from experience, thank God, but I would think killing a man would be a momentously overwhelming emotion. This seems to be the case, at least for Illage. Spandrel, on the other hand, had this to say about the scene. Everard Webley's body was lying where it had fallen, on its side, with the arms reaching out across the floor. The chloroform-soaked handkerchief still covered the face. Spandrel bent down and twitched it away. The temple which had been struck was against the floor. Seen from above, the face seemed unwounded. His hands in his pockets, Spandrel stood looking down at the body. Five minutes ago, he said to himself, formulating his thoughts in words that the realization of their significance might be the more complete. Five minutes ago, it was alive. It had a soul. Alive. He repeated, and balancing himself steadily on one leg with the other foot, he touched the dead cheek. He pushed forward the ear and let it flick back again. Are you seeing this in your head? So cartoonish and absurd. A soul. And for a moment he allowed some of his weight to rest on what had been Everard Webley's face. He withdrew his foot. The print of it remained, dust gray on the white skin. Trampling on a dead face, he said to himself. Why had he done it? Trampling, trampling. He raised his foot again and pressed his heel into the socket of the eye, gently, tentatively, as though experimenting with outrage. Like grapes, he thought, trampling wine out of the grapes. It was in his power to trample this thing into a pulp. But he had done enough. Thanks, Huxley. <laughs> the juxtaposition of imagery here really does take the wind out of the sails of the climax. But it's on purpose. As it says, Symbolically, he had trodden out the essential horror from his murder. It had flowed from under his trampling feet. What could have been described as extraordinary, significant, and violent, and meaningful becomes common, mundane, and absurd. The death of a political leader, at least in the moment he lays there dead on the floor, he just becomes another object of space. Which shows he's just always another object of space. There's something almost nihilistic here. But, Spandrel is still looking for God here. The essential horror... It was more stupid and disgusting than horrible. Pushing the toe of his boot under the chin, he rolled the head over until the face was looking up, open mouth and with half-shut eyes at the ceiling. Above and behind the left eye was a huge red contusion. There were trickles of blood on the left cheek, already dry, and where the forehead had rested on the floor a little pool, hardly even a pool, a smear. While Spandrel is thinking about the silliness of it all, thinking about the fact that what he's done, you know, was, might possibly be the highest of sins, the taking of another life, the ultimate execution of personal will over the life of another. So come on, God, if you're going to do something to smite someone, here it is. Conversely, you have Illidge freaking out in the corner about all of it. But it's all about himself. It's his own fear and his own future and all that concerns him. It's not Webley or Webley's life or death that's concerning him at the moment. The grand significance of death, the grand significance of taking the life of another, escapes this whole scene. It is absent. On purpose. So they sit there waiting for something like two hours so that they can get rid of the body once the traffic in town slows down and they can more readily move things without being seen. But then Spanner remembers that rigor mortis is a thing. 
Which is a comical nod back to the statement that's made by Lady Edward during the party when she says that Webley wants to be his own marble statue like the others in Hyde Park. Well, here he is, dead and stiff, becoming the statue. Everything is intrinsically like the man that it happens to. Spander laughs at this idea, and so they scramble to figure out what to do. The plan is to put Webley's body in the backseat of his fancy car underneath the leather covering and then drop it back in Hyde Square. It's fittingly poetic. But to do so... They have to scrunch up the body a bit so it fits in the back seat. In a comical scene, they're hog-tying the body, which is already starting to get stiff, and every time they pull up a leg, it stretches back out, kicking them as if it were fighting them. But eventually, they get it in the back of the car, Spandrel drops Illage, body still in the car behind them, at Tantamount House so that he can put together an alibi, and then Spandrel drops off the car in, par- in the park and then walks to Sabisa's to give himself an alibi as well. So there is Webley, all night long, a statue in Hyde Park like he wanted to be. Like he was even in the earlier scene, the white horse of the apocalypse that he's riding just before and that vision of violent triumph in his speech. Only this time, here he is in a very compromising fetal position, curled up, dead from a pretty tame-looking wound to the head. No blood, no explosion to the face, nothing that would seemingly look externally major. Hardly triumphant. Political justice poetic justice. After all this, Spandrel goes to Sabisa's and suffers probably the most wild of Rampian rants, as he sits there pointing at every single person at the table to make fun of them, to call them out, and eventually he realizes that he's doing the same thing he's ranting about, and everyone else's philosophical failings, so he laughs at himself and he finally sits back down. Spandrel's questions, though, keep harping back to the idea of being the conscious villain, which he claims is still better than being purely animalistic, And when Rampion says his way of life is like being dead, he thinks. Everard Webley, lying on the floor, trussed up like a chicken. Did he prefer being dead? All the same, he said slowly, some things must always remain absolutely and radically wrong. Killing, for example. He wanted to believe that it was more than merely low and sordid and disgusting. He wanted to believe it was also terrible and tragic. So what's next, then? The experiment, so far, seems to have failed. God has not been called from his existential abstract void to reach the divine hand into the temporal sphere to strike Spandrel down for the murder. Right now, there seems to be no real consequence, let alone any cosmic consequence, no ripping of the fabric of time and space, and it seems like it's not even had a profound impact on the emotional sympathies of Spandrel, which would give him an emotional answer, maybe... There seems to be no more direction to go with this other than to conclude, like Nietzsche, that God is dead. But that leaves him with the answer he doesn't want. So instead of, as Philip says about Rampion, fitting the view to the evidence, Spandrel still wants to fit the evidence to the view. But what new evidence can he get here? Well, I have to stop at this point. A quicker episode than most. Because if I say too much here, I ruin the ending, and there will be plenty to say there. If you want to dive into some of the political philosophies behind Webley and Illage and the like, check the resources for this episode. If you have questions, want to discuss things further, hit up the official Twitter handle at fillinthedetails or email fillinthedetails at gmail.com. I really can't wait for the next episode of the series when we wrap it up with my absolute favorite part of the book. God, that last chapter is just genius. So see you next week. I'm Stacey Cabrera, and you've been listening to Fill in the Details.